I'd like to introduce this gentleman again. It's not necessary, but I'd really love to see you again, so that's why I decided to do it. <laughs> First of all, and I wrote it down, he is a revival evangelist. He is the head of the Evangelistic Church Planting Network in Alabama. And that is too small a territory, I hope. Then he is the evangelistic preacher of the Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship, number one. Secondly, he is devoted to revival prayer because he knows that without prayer we have nothing. Thirdly, he is a revival preacher. He has the gift of teaching. And when you get a gift, you become unstoppable. And when he preaches, guess what? He wants you to become unstoppable in revival evangelism and revival prayer. Now, you think you can remember that? You can remember that? Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Father, I ask you that you will empower this brother in a marvelous fashion and make him effective in the lives, through the hearts of the students. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Henry. It is a joy and a delight to be back with you today. And I want to speak to you again from Psalm 51. And we believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God, our only rule of faith and practice. I want to speak to you today on contrition and restoration. From Psalm 51, verse 16 and following. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that your spirit would come down with power and authority. And that we'd see Jesus, and that we'd love Him and serve Him. And Father, again, as I always say, as I always pray, there may be some here today, Father, who are not yet in Christ Jesus. We pray, open their eyes, give them the grace, the ability by Your Spirit to see what a beautiful, matchless, glorious, wonderful Savior Jesus is. We pray in His name. Amen. David wrote, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. David wrote, Blessed are the man who meditates on your word day and night. He believed that the word was righteous. Oh, really? Well, then what was he doing committing adultery with Bathsheba? He delights in the law of the Lord and he commits adultery? 
He also says, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Did he really write that? Did he really say that? I mean, after all, when he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant by him, in a deceitful fashion, he brings Uriah back and says, hey, listen, you need to go lay with your wife. And then when he refuses to do that, he sends him back to the front lines of battle, has the men back up from him. Does God really abhor the man of bloodshed and deceit? David said, who may abide on thy holy hill and who will walk in thy righteousness? He who walks in your righteousness, he who keeps your word. Oh, really? Because you see, David decided, I want that particular woman. Here's the thing I want you to see. David, in essence, is saying, I am the king. I can do whatever I want. I can have who I want, when I want it. Doesn't matter. I am the king. I am in control. I have needs. I have responsibilities other people don't know. I can do as I wish. Now, what's fueling that? Pride. When he says, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit, did I really write that? Did I really mean that? So what's fueling his deceit and his bloodshed? Unbelief. He says he believes the word. He wrote it. Ah, I'm not so sure about it now. And when he decides, I know that adultery is wrong. I know the righteousness of the Word of God. I know I'm supposed to obey the Word. But in this particular circumstance, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Rebellion. Listen, the root of our sin problems are pride, unbelief, and rebellion. And it's in this context after Nathan makes clear to David his sin, as Nathan was used by God to penetrate the heart of this man who had been one after God's own heart, but now is filled with pride, unbelief, and rebellion, it's at that particular point that God gets his attention and he writes this penitential psalm. And you'll notice he says again, on this whole idea of contrition, O Lord, Thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. In other words, I know, I know in my mind what I'm supposed to do. And sometimes I go through the motions and I offer these sacrifices, but God, you're not impressed necessarily what comes out of my mind, and you're not impressed with what comes out of my actions, what you want. What you desire, your sacrifice, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, thou wilt not despise. What you're really after is not just what I know, not just what I do. You want my heart. David was brought to contrition and humiliation. But it doesn't stop there because, you see, we have a glorious, almighty God of eternal salvation. Because, you see, contrition and humiliation will yield restoration and repentance. 
You notice at the end of the chapter, Psalm 51, verse 18, By thy favor do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Lord, I've broken these things down. Do good to Jerusalem. Show us your favor once again. Then, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. In other words, the sacrifices are not bad. That's a good thing. But do them from the heart. Now, Lord, when I am contrite and when I repent, when I am humbled before you, then I'm restored. And when I'm restored, I can offer these sacrifices again from the heart. Here's what I'm after. I want you to understand that God desires contrition and humiliation, leading to repentance and restoration. Pride, unbelief, and rebellion. How is it that pride can manifest itself in your lives and mine? Well, here's a couple of ways. Number one is theological pride. By the way, James says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God hates pride. One of the ways we manifest our pride is in theological pride. Listen, I love and I embrace our Reformed theology. I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. I believe it is the fullest expression of what God's Word teaches. So I glory in that theology. But it is very easy for us to begin to have theological pride and to look down our noses on those who don't really have that developed of a theology. Or maybe who are Arminian or maybe charismatic or something of that nature. And so we just begin secretly to exalt ourselves over them. God hates that sort of thing. But then also pride can manifest itself in a cultural fashion. I am from the South and I love my Southern culture. But the moment I put my Southern culture over the Word of God is the moment I'm in trouble. Theological pride, cultural pride, and racial pride. If you're here today and you secretly think your race is better than another race, God hates that. If you're here today and you think your race is inferior to someone other's race, God hates that too because Paul says that Christ himself broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, putting to death the enmity which was contained in the law and the commandments. And he made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Racial pride, theological pride, cultural pride. When my youngest son was 13, I coached his baseball team down in Brunswick, Georgia. We were the Brunswick Barons, 13 and 14-year-old team. Half my team was white, half my team was black. We're playing a game one day in Savannah. And a team from Statesboro came back in the last inning and beat us. And after the game, you know how you walk by and shake hands and so forth. Um, after, the, after our players shook hands, my black players were obviously very upset and very agitated. I said, hey, what's going on? What happened? Well, they called us some names. Really? 
So I went to their coach and said, what's going on here, coach? Can't you control your players? Oh, whatever. Forget about it. So I'm really upset. So I go home and I talk to my wife. Now listen, the star player of our team was Adam Wainwright. Anybody ever heard of him? He pitches for the St. Louis Cardinals today. And uh, he's a devoted believer. Now, when, when Adam Wainwright was 14, he was already about 6'5", and he threw the ball in the high 80s. So this guy was really something. So I come home to my wife and said, I told her what happened. I said, listen, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The next time we play that team from Statesboro, Adam Wainwright's on the mound, and he's going to stick one in their ear. My wife says, that is a really good Christian attitude. Yeah, why don't, you, why don't you use this as an opportunity for the gospel? I said, yeah, I guess so. So I get my players together the next day for practice. I say, hey, what do you think's going on here? Why did they do this? Well, you know, they're not educated. They're ignorant. They brought up that way. I said, yeah, that's all true. But listen, deep down, <laughs> yeah, it's deep down in their hearts and in the heart of every person in the world, there's this inherent desire to exalt ourselves by putting other people down. I see it in every culture I've ever been in in the world. So I said, at the bottom of it, it's a root problem of a rebellious, what I call, cobra heart. And only Jesus can take that away. But you see, even as believers, we can fall back into these things. God hates theological, cultural, or racial pride. What about unbelief? Some of us today in the church are saying, you know, I'm not so sure about the authority of Scripture. Did God really say that he created the world out of nothing? Did God really say that Adam and Eve were real people? Does God really say that there's a heaven and there's an eternal hell? Does God really say that fornication and adultery is sin? Does he really say that people without Jesus go to hell? Does he really say those things? So sometimes we doubt the authority of Scripture. Sometimes we're not so sure about the sufficiency of Christ either. I mean, are we sure Jesus is the only way? I mean, what about the sincere Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and animists? I mean, I know a lot of people are pretty sincere. Are we really sure that Jesus is the only Savior? And then sometimes we're not so sure about the efficacy of the Spirit, the immediacy of the Spirit. In other words, a lot of times we don't expect much to happen when we pray, when we evangelize. We're, not, we're just kind of going through the motions. We don't really acknowledge our Presbyterian and Reformed heritage of revival, heaven-sent revival coming down by the power of the Spirit. We don't really expect anything to happen. Sometimes we're not so sure about the efficacy of prayer. And so, hey, I've not really seen God answer any prayers lately. Maybe this stuff really doesn't work. Maybe prayer is merely a psychological ploy. Or sometimes we're not so sure, and this is really true today, we're not so sure about intentional evangelism. I mean, we live in a postmodern world. That doesn't really work anymore, does it? Don't you have to have a long-term relationship with people, you know, six months, a year, and then maybe eventually slip the gospel in the side door? I mean, do you really, can you really just go up to somebody 
and show the love of Jesus to them and speak to them right off about the gospel? Can you really do that today? Pride, unbelief, and rebellion. Rebellion goes like this. I know what God says about stealing. I know what God says about fornication and any kind of sexual activity outside the bounds of heterosexual monogamous marriage. I know what it says, but listen, I work 15 hours a week. I've got this heavy load of classes. I've got this paper coming up. I just don't see any way I can get it done. One of my friends really wrote a really good paper, better than what I could do. I think I'll just use that. God, you'll understand. Rebellion. If you're involved in fornication, it's sin. Rebellion against God. Pride, unbelief, and rebellion. Now what is it that you must do? You must ask the Holy Spirit to work in you. Because listen, God is not impressed with your sacrifices. God's not impressed with your singing. God's not impressed with your studies. If it's just cerebral, if it's just in the will, if you're just going through the motions, God's not impressed. Here's what God wants. God says, I want a spirit. I want your spirit and your heart contrite before me. Ask the Spirit of God to break your heart, to humble you, to bring you low. And now when you do that, the beauty is that He will drive you to the Savior and He will give you the grace you need. Here's the analogy I like to use. July 4th, you're having a picnic with your family. You're playing a little softball out in the field. When you're out in the field, you, you stir up some yellow jackets. And man, they're stinging you all over your body. And you're knocking them away. and you, They're relentless. You can't get away from them. And then you see a little pond about 100 yards away down in the meadow. And you don't know what else to do, so you run down to that pond and you dive in the water. And you put yourself under the water. And because you're under the water, the yellow jackets leave you alone. You see, 1 Corinthians 15 says the law stings us. The purpose of the law in the Christian's life is to remind us of our sin, to sting us, to plague our consciences, as it were. And then what it's supposed to do is drive us to the only one who can give us refuge. So when God shows you your sin, if he's doing so even now, pride, unbelief, rebellion, whatever it is, what you got to do, when he shows you that and when he brings you low, run, run, run as fast as you can down to that pond That pond is filled not merely with water. That pond is filled with the blood of Jesus and the water of the Holy Spirit. You run down there for the river of grace, that sanctifying, redeeming flood, the blood of Jesus and the water of the Spirit. And when you do so, He will cleanse you. He will empower you. He will strengthen you. If we want to see a great work of God at Covenant College and beyond. You got to understand, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble.
do you have theological pride? Do you have cultural pride? How about racial pride? Are you not so sure about the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Jesus, the immediacy of the Spirit, the efficacy of prayer, the intentionality of evangelism? Are you engaged right now in willful, deliberate disobedience to God? You got to be humbled, broken, brought low. Then run, run, run to that great Savior of sinners, the one who will cleanse you and forgive you right now. Run to Him, and when you sin again, and you will. You run again and again and again and you plunge yourself under that redeeming, sanctifying flood of the blood of Jesus and the water of the Spirit. In 1966, in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, a white Lutheran pastor named Erlo Stegen was ministering to a little church of 25 Zulus. Nothing is happening. He can't get the Zulu people of the community to be interested in white man's religion. And the people in his church, from his point of view, are lazy, divisive. They don't want to do anything about the kingdom of God. And he's getting more and more angry as the day goes on. One day he's preaching. And he says, in the midst of this animistic culture with the African traditional religions where spirit deities kind of bring you up to God and so forth, he says, now listen, I want you to know Jesus is more powerful than the Sangoma, the witch doctor. Come to Jesus. He can set you free from these things. This woman came up to him afterwards and said, is that really true? He goes, absolutely. She goes, would you please come with me? So... She took Erlo Stegen to her little mud hut with the grass roof. He looks inside and there's a post there. And to the chain to the post with steel wire around her arms was her teenage daughter. Naked, disheveled look, foaming at the mouth, cuts all over her. We tried to keep her tied up with ropes. That didn't work. We got to have the steel wire. I've tried everything. I've, I've sacrificed all my goats and chicken because the San Goma told me to. I'm out of animals now and nothing seems to work. Fine. We will lay hands on your daughter and we will pray. They began to pray, Stegan and his elders. They prayed for an hour or two. Nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. And he is shocked, and he's stunned, and he's dismayed. He leaves saying, what has happened? Is not the gospel powerful enough to invade this culture? Oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's because these people are so ignorant. Maybe the gospel just doesn't work with these kinds of people. But that got him to thinking and praying so he got his congregation together and they began to pray. They said, God, show us our sin. Now what Erlo Stegen had in mind was for God to show his Zulu parishioners their sin. 
But as the Spirit of God began to work on Erlo Stegen, he says, you know, I am full of pride, theological, cultural, and racial pride. I honestly think I'm better than these people. Don't they know who I am? Don't they know I've sacrificed my life to serve them? And it is painful. God is showing, God is stripping away his life and he sees what he's really like. And at the same time, God begins to work on the Zulu congregation. They begin to see their sin. And so they're praying regularly for God to do a great work. Now one day he's preaching. And there was a woman who didn't, I guess, didn't know the protocol. I, mean, I don't guess she knew that when the preacher's preaching, you're supposed to be quiet and listen. Because while he's preaching, she says, A pastor, uh, I have something I want to say. And he goes, uh, Okay, go ahead. Pastor, I think we should pray that our church becomes like the church in the book of Acts. He goes, Okay, why don't you pray that then? So she prayed a little simple prayer. Service went on, nothing happened. But they continued to pray. Now, one day on a Saturday morning, they're at a little house right next to the white man's country club. And Erlo Stegen's there with his black Zulu friends about to pray. And Stegen looks at her and he sees his white friends get ready to tee it up on the first hole and on the tennis courts. And he, you know, all of his pride's not gone yet because he's kind of ashamed, you know. While his white friends are over here, he's over here with his Zulu friends. So he says, okay, we're going to go in here and pray. And he says, now... Uh, let's close the door and shut the windows. In other words, I don't want people on the outside to see what we're doing. Now, as he's about to go in, it's as though God says to him, now, if you do that, I'm not coming in with you. Okay. So they keep the doors open. They keep the windows open. They're staking on his knees, pouring out his heart to God with the Zulu parishioners, asking God to rend the heavens and to come down. And while they're praying, now I know this seems odd, all right? While they're praying, they said, a rushing wind came through that place. And they came outside and they noticed hundreds of Zulus coming toward them now willing to hear the gospel. Until that point, they said, no, no, no. This is white man's religion. We want nothing to do with it. God brought a mighty revival. The place is called Quasi-Zabantu. In Zulu, a place of refuge. A few years later, they built a 10,000-seat auditorium. The revival continues to this day. They've got a school. They've got a college. They've got all kinds of... Uh, economies going on in that area, farming and fruit trees and everything else. An amazing movement of God. Oh, one last thing. Three years later, after Stegen is first trying to cast the demons out of this girl, he sees the woman again in a church service. He says, how's your daughter? Same situation. He goes, okay, we're going back. They go back and they lay hands on her and they cast out what they said was 300 demons. Now this sounds weird to us. Now, some of y'all have been in Africa. You know what I'm talking about. I was just in south of Cape Town back in November. We had a, a man come to the service who was de demonic uh, possessed by demons and we were able to cast the demons out of him. Here's what I want you to see. Until Erlo Stegen and the people of his congregation saw their pride and their unbelief 
in the rebellion, nothing happened. But when they prayed, and when they repented, and when God brought contrition and humiliation, then God brought repentance, and then God brought restoration. This is where we've got to be. The glory of the gospel is, on the one hand, we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And when we acknowledge it, when we repent and we run down to that river of grace, He forgives us, He empowers us, He cleanses us. Now here's what I want you to do. Business as usual is not working. I can't remember if I said this on Wednesday. If I did, please forgive me, but it bears repeating. We've never had more information. Bible colleges, seminaries, and all of this. It's not working. We've got to have revival. Here's what I'm after. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to two things. I know you're busy. I know you got a lot going on. But I want to challenge you to revival prayer. Getting together at least one hour every week in small groups, pouring out your heart in prayer to Almighty God, repenting, seeking Him, expecting Him to do great and mighty things. And secondly, as you begin to pray in that manner, here's what's going to happen. As you begin to pray in that manner, God will begin to stir up in your heart a passion and a concern for the lost. We are far too cerebral. By all means, we need to have that theology. But listen, if it's just in the mind, it's no good. It's got to be, it's got to go from the mind down to the heart. Listen. The problem in the church is not methodology, it's not programs. The problem in the church is right here. It's the heart. I want to challenge you to revival prayer, and I want to challenge you to intentional evangelism. Wait a second, I'm busy. You know, I got all this class stuff going on. I know how it is. You're probably like me. I can think of Every reason in the world not to do evangelism. Now, if you hear you're an evangelist, that's not a problem for you. You do it anyway. But if you're not evangelist, you got to get over the hump. you got to make yourself do it. And I am as bad as anybody coming up with all these good things I need to do instead of what I know I'm called to do. Every one of us right now where you are ought to be engaged in intentional evangelism. Down in Chattanooga, at various colleges, whatever, there's a lot of different things. And you know what? There's a lot of people who can lead you in revival prayer. There's a lot of people who can lead you in intentional evangelism, and I'm sure there are plenty of professors here on this campus who can do that very thing. But I do want to say that Henry and I are willing to be involved in any way we can if that is the desire. You just need to let Henry know, let me know. Pride, unbelief, rebellion. Run, run, run to the river of grace. It is sufficient. It is powerful. It will sanctify you. It will make you holy. Perfectly? No. But you will make progress. 
as we pray together. Now, as we've closed our eyes in prayer, it might be that the Holy Spirit has brought conviction to you. If that is the case, then silently in your heart would you confess your sin and ask God for the gift of repentance. 2 Timothy 2 says it is a gift. You cannot assume you will repent. Ask him for the gift of repentance. And then, right now, apply what you know. You know Jesus is sufficient. You know the glory and efficacy of his blood shed at Calvary for you. Apply it by faith. Bring it from the mind, by the spirit, to the heart, so that it comes out in your will, in your actions, in your behavior, in your speech. So repent. Run back to Jesus. And then, Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work on this campus. Lord, you have brought revival in other campuses at other times. Hampton Sydney College, numerous times in the 1780s, in the early 1820s. You brought revival at Wheaton College in 1970. And at Asbury College that same year. Went on for days, students repenting confessing their sin. They had to suspend classes. Lord, would you do a mighty work of revival on this campus? Lord, our heritage is one of revival in the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. God, would you pour out your spirit again? Drive us to Jesus. Move us to revival prayer and intentional evangelism. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus. We know that to whom much is given, much is required. We're under obligation. We must, we must, we must preach the gospel. Thank you, Father, for the empowering spirit who makes it possible. Hear our prayer. We make it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You are dismissed. Amen.